I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Virginia Pius short story collection, Shelf Life of Happiness, won the 2019 Independent Publisher Gold Medal Award for Short Fiction, and one of the stories was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Her novels, River of Dust and Dreams of the Red Phoenix, have also received literary awards. Her essays have appeared in Literary Hub, New York Times, The Rumpus, Huffington Post, and elsewhere. Virginia graduated from Wesleyan University and holds an MFA from Sarah Lawrence College. She has been a Tin House Summer Workshop Scholar, an assistant at the Virginia Quarterly Review Conference, and a repeat fellow at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She's taught at New York University and the University of Pennsylvania, and most recently at Grub Street in Boston. Her latest novel is The Literary Undoing of Victoria Swan. Welcome, Virginia. Hello. Great to meet you, Chris. I understand you've moved around quite a bit, but when you returned to Boston, you found it noticeably more bookish than other cities. So why is that? Well, let's see. I've had the pleasure of living in Hartford, Connecticut, New York City, Philadelphia, and Richmond, Virginia for 17 years. That's where my husband and I had our children and raised them there and then moved back to where I started, which is in Cambridge, Mass. And, you know, I was gone for 35 years and I came back and I'd visited a lot, but I had never noticed, it was so obvious, how many people here read all the time. It just cracked me up. I would see people walking down the sidewalks with a paperback held up before their eyes, reading while walking. At stoplights, people would read in their cars, people read while waiting, practically in grocery lines. And these were people reading real books. In other words, you know, it wasn't just on your Kindle, wasn't just on your phone. And I was just so impressed. And then I started noticing all the other signs that this is such a bookish city, historically, you know, walking around in the part of Cambridge where I live, there are markers that show that Robert Frost lived here, Mm -hmm. W.E.B. Du Bois. Obviously, Emerson, Hawthorne, Longfellow, Thoreau, you know, you can't get away from these guys. And so that's what I mean by it's bookish. It's just deep with all those kind of literary figures going back. That is so cool. What took you all over the place? My husband's career. He was a longtime contemporary art museum curator and then art museum director. And so the world of art museums, you know, it takes you to major cities, basically. And so we had a really good time. And those different cities happened to hit at just the right moments. Like when we were in our 20s and pre-kids, we happened to live in New York City for seven years. And then Philly, where our kids were born, and then Richmond, where we raised them. So, you know, it was good. It's been a good gig. And then coming here as empty nesters is really fun. So fun. Just looking at all the things you've done and your education, you obviously knew pretty early on that writing was going to be your path. Do you remember there being a time where you said, oh, this is it. This is what I need to do. Yeah, I remember at age 10, I guess I was fifth grade, maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. Coming inside from being out in the snow, there's a lot more snow back then, and looking at a snowflake. 
as it was melting on my wrist. And I quickly sat down and wrote a little poem about the snowflake melting on my wrist and somehow about like some crazy notion of, of life and death. You know, it was kind of heavy. <laughs> and I stood there next to my mother as she was cooking. She was probably making spaghetti or something and read it aloud to her. And I don't think she stopped what she was doing, but she was like, oh, that's nice. And I thought, mom, you don't get it. Don't you see? This is the coolest thing ever that I could do that, you know, that I, could I made this. Bigger, yeah. yeah, I made it. And I had kind of a bigger thought, you know, I had some kind of larger thought about life and I managed to stick it in to attach it to something that was a little story, you know, about a snowflake melting. That's very sweet that you asked that question. I haven't thought of that in decades, but it's kind of true. And that's still the joy of inventing and, you know, finding meaning and then just getting so psyched about how to share it on the page. So, you know, I read another interview with you where you spoke about something that happened with your son and it inspired writing. And if you're open to creating meaning and writing about those little events that a lot of people they happen and you just kind of bypass. Tell us a little bit yeah, about that Easter. Sure, event. sure. Well, it, it ended up being a short story called Easter Morning. Oh my Lord, I've forgotten the name of it. It's in my collection, Shelf Life of Happiness, which is my third book that was published. And the thing about short stories, it's so amazing, is that you can get these little gems of ideas and you can dig down into them in a shorter period of time. It's not, you know, it, you don't have to have a huge scaffolding for your ideas the way you have to in a novel. You can just get given these little moments in life and then you get to explore them. And so what happened was, this is when my second child was was quite young and we were having an Easter egg hunt in the backyard on Easter morning with a bunch of neighbors and friends. And um, there were, we had, we had put Easter eggs all around the yard and the kids had collected them. And, um, and then we were all eating a brunch and I went to serve the kids or something. And I overheard one of the older kids saying to my son, that's gross. You can't keep that in your drawer. And I was like, what does he have in his drawer? <laughs> yeah. You pay attention when your and, kids start you saying. Know, suddenly like <laughs> antenna goes up. I think he was six years old or something. And I was like, okay, honey, what's going on? What have you got in your in the drawer of your bedside table? And it turns out that it was a dead bird that had hit, I guess, our window a week or so before. And we had been very sad about it. And we had done the right thing. We had gone and buried it in the backyard. And then my son had very sweetly thought to resurrect it and put it the dead bird in his bedside table. And so the fact that I was discovering this on Easter morning, hello, life is giving you huge clues here that this is a story. (laughs) I got to go and end up writing a story about a made up family and kind of a a remarkable thing where they go and, and sure enough, open up the bedside table and there is this dead bird that's kind of swarming with maggots and the whole thing and worms. And, you know, there's all this, you know, sense of death and life and that moment. And the son is so innocent and the father and mother are trying to explain, you know, you can't really bring things back to life, but he's so sure you can. And I threw into the story, a divinity student 
because there actually was one at my brunch. And also because I just thought, you know, let's just underline this, what we've got going on here in this story is an Easter story that was given to me on a silver platter, that story, you know, by life. And um, you got to grab them. You got to grab those moments. You do, but, but you have to pay attention too. 20 other moms would be pulling their hair out about the dead bird, the yeah. maggots in the nightstand. And there probably I was, was. I took, that. took care of it. Yeah. To be able to take that and find meaning and deliver mm-hmm. meaning to readers, yeah. I think is really special. And I think it takes somebody to open to that. And you're, yeah. you know, it's not that you're looking for it necessarily, but you're just open to it. In poetry, there's more opportunities for that. Poets, mm-hmm. which I started out as as I mentioned as a 10 year old, no, but seriously, I was, I was a poet for a while when I was a young adult, but the point is, you know, poems often do that. They're just grab little metaphors in life and, and, you know, kind of work them when you get into larger forms. And I've become a, you know, a novelist for many decades. You need something much bigger than that. You need a story and you need characters that you develop and you need, like I said before, scaffolding for your story. I so admire short story writers and poets, I think about doing a short story and it terrifies me. I'm not as scared about doing a novel. And maybe because that's all I've done. I don't know how I would condense all that. Just a different way of of looking at it. it. And and not everybody does both at all. You know, it's it's sort of what suits you and suits your way of thinking. And that's terrific. If you're able to write longer things, that's even better. And certainly agents and publishers are more interested in novels than they are in short stories. So if you've got that tendency, go with it. It seems like there's also more carryover for what agents and editors want from short story writers to novels, to be able to write a short story, you have to condense it, get all the extra out and and really boil it down to the really good part, make it meaningful. And so I think that a lot of novelists, you know, we end up writing a ton and throwing a ton away. And I think short story writers, you kind of have that discipline. I write lots and lots and lots of drafts of both things, of all of it. It's very impractical in a way, you know, like just... (laughs) I write pretty fast, meaning I write the drafts fairly quickly, but then I write a lot of them. I write a lot, a yeah. lot of drafts. You had one of your stories nominated for a Pushcart Prize. What was that like? Oh, that's a good thing. I've had stories in literary journals, and now I'm an editor, a fiction editor at a literary journal, and I see what the process is. And it's it's not mysterious. It's basically the editors of a journal look back over the stories that they've published over the past year and then together decide which are their favorites or which they think are you know the strongest. And then they submit them. And so it's, you know, it's perfectly understandable part of that whole process. And, you know, I was delighted. It's a nice good. honor. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the novel that you have coming out in October, The Literary Undoing of Victoria Swan. The first paragraph really kind of took me. Do you mind reading that first paragraph for our I'd listeners? I'd be happy to. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to get to share this with readers starting October 3rd. So that's going to be fun. Okay, The Literary Undoing of Victoria Swan, Chapter 1. On an overcast afternoon in April, Victoria Swan stepped from a carriage onto a brick sidewalk in Beacon Hill. Under her boots coarse rivulets of slush and mud, evidence that Boston had survived yet another winter. She gripped the iron handrail and climbed the steps to her publisher's door. Lifting her face into tepid sunlight, she felt the early spring air brush her cheeks. She was a mountaineer, high at the peak and flush with accomplishment. In her carpet bag lay the start of an altogether new sort of novel, unlike any of her previous ones. She lifted the knocker and struck it against the brass plate. Her writing had gotten her into this mess, 
and it would have to get her back out. Wow. Such a great first paragraph. What is in those pages? Jennifer Finney Boylan, who wrote Mad Honey with Jodi Picoult, said, Virginia Pye's novel invites us into a distant era that in its depiction of the challenges faced by women of letters seems hauntingly familiar, but Victoria Swan persists and prevails. The story of her undoing is generous, fierce, and inspiring. Thank you. Tell us about Victoria Swan. This is a novel set in Gilded Age Boston and Cambridge. And Victoria Swan is a highly successful author of dime novels, which are romance and adventure novels. And she's been doing this for a little while. She has been doing it for 12 years, in fact, starting at a pretty young age of 18. And she's grown tired of it. It Basically, if you ever read those types of novels from back in the day, they are one after the next, very similar to each other. And she's grown tired of it. And she wants to tell her own true story. This happens to match with the fact that all these young women are coming in from the farms, as she did, into the cities. And it's right at that time when industrialization is happening and other things are changing the landscape for women. And women are rising and want to hear their want to share and hear their own true stories. Victoria is one of those women and yet her publisher doesn't want her to change her style. Her husband doesn't want her to and quickly as she offers or says she's going to do this, all these things happen to her. And it's sort of a funny premise that one's style of writing, what one would write would create all this kind of life change, but it does. And it does very quickly. And suddenly the poor woman is, she's losing her husband, she's losing her publisher, she's losing her home. And yet she ends up closer to her female readers than ever before. She ends up with more friends. She ends up sort of more real than she ever was able to be before. The feminist story, it's definitely a book lover's story. It's a story with scenes set in bookstores and in libraries. And I've been writing for a long time. It's my fourth published book. And it really is my way of thanking books and fellow authors and just kind of a tribute to the writing life. Fabulous. Compare Virginia and Victoria. (laughs) Well, what's so sweet is a number of times people have gotten the name of my character mixed up and I'm like, ah, okay, I guess I meant to do that. (laughs) Um, I didn't quite realize it, but I guess I did. You know, we're quite similar. I'm going to be honest. She is someone who, like so many writers, is sure, is convinced that she's a hack. And, you know, frankly, she's been writing kind of hackish books, meaning not highbrow, not literary, not respected by the gentlemen of letters around her, a publisher, etc. And I have always felt that I'm a storyteller and I'm a careful craftsperson, but I'm not highly, highly literary. And I've grown up going to colleges and graduate schools where that was what was so coveted. And I've ended up writing what I think of as more plot-driven stories Mm -hmm. with a lot of, you know, strong characters, I hope. But things happen in my books. I think the language is strong, but that's not the only reason why somebody would read my book isn't for my beautiful sentences necessarily. I don't don't want to put myself down here, but there's a certain amount of judgment amongst writers and, and publishers and all the rest 
about whether being simply a good storyteller is enough in certain ways. And so anyway, I relate to her and I feel that she is trying to find her true voice and she's up against certain prejudices and snobbery. And got to say, I've experienced that in my day. Do you feel like you found your true voice? Yeah, I definitely do. I really love her. And I think she's got a lot of gumption and it's very funny. I think the book has got a lot of humor in it and she does not end up a great writer. She does not end up being winning the prize for best literary, this, that, and the other, but she gets to finally tell her own true story. And she's very happy about that. So there is a love story in the book. It's just not the expected one. Mm -hmm. And I just had a lot of fun with it. I'm very proud of my other books too. And I think they are very story driven also. So it's not that I've waited all these years to finally find my voice, but I am pleased to have found it again through this story. Yeah. A timely story when you look at what's going on and voices being shushed Mm -hmm. is a nice way to put it. Yeah. I have to say, I just came from the Barbie movie yesterday. Yes. It turns out it's such an overtly feminist story but told in this absolutely surprising way that you're just, I was, I was floored by it. I thought it was very clever and very enjoyable. And I was rooting for Barbie. Who knew I would, you know? (laughs) So it kind of reminds me a little bit of my story. I don't know, just in that it's kind of a, in my case, it's playing around with the tropes of romance novels. You've written quite a bit now. And and now as an editor, you see the other side of it, but I want to talk to you a little bit about your process, because I read that as it pertains to rejections, you didn't take the rejections as like, oh, they don't like my stuff and I'm going to, you know, throw it away and start over. You took it as here's something to build upon. Probably not getting a whole lot of rejections at this point. How has your process changed? Just to clarify one thing, I think there's probably you can count on one hand writers at this point writing who don't face rejection. And I'm not on that hand. Point. I'm not one of those fingers. Okay. So we all do. It's just at different levels and from different people. And, you know, you just keep aiming for different things and you, you, you have near misses and, you know, but you got to keep trying. Yeah. I feel like every project I've done, I've gone through different phases of revision and of sharing it with people and getting feedback. And whether that's just fellow writers or whether that's people in the industry, meaning my agent or, you know, editors and and you get feedback. And I think it's wise to pay attention to that. When I was much younger and had my very first agent at age 27, I didn't get it yet that you really need to listen carefully to what the people in that industry are saying to you. And they're saying it for a reason. And it's not that they know more than you do. It's that they know what can sell. That's valuable information for writers who want to actually be published. It's always good to go back to the work and give it another try and try to breathe new life into it and try to see it through a different reader's eyes, not your own. That feedback you got at 27, you know, Mm -hmm. do you remember what it was that when you got it, you got it? Like when you figured out, oh, this is something I was doing that I need to do differently. Was it one thing? Was it a stylistic thing? You know, it's kind of hard for me to think about that book in particular because it was so long ago. And also, I don't think I did get it. That's the point. You know, I Mm -hmm. didn't get it back then. And that book didn't get published. And so that's a drag. But it was a very promising potential start, but then it was a false start. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't until I started sending stories out and and then eventually got a first book published. I had some feedback at a certain point that a novel I'd been working on for five years was actually two novels, not one. 
And I was horrified. I was like, what? I don't, I don't agree. And then I actually got help from a wonderful woman editor named Nancy Zafiris, who had been the editor for the Kenyan Review and was herself a good novelist. Unfortunately, she passed away not too long ago. But Nancy sat me down and said, no, 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 this is two novels. You need to zero in here on this first novel. And you you need to just get rid of all this other stuff and get to work on this. And I started that day and I wrote a revision of a book that I'd worked on for years. I wrote a revision of it in six weeks. And that book that I revised in six weeks, I sent to Nancy And I said, I think I've revised it like we discussed. And she read it. She passed on to her editor. And two weeks later, I had a book deal. Nice. So I have labored over novels for five to seven years. And that book revision took me an incredibly short amount of time. And so there's no predicting it. I just want to say (laughs) you have to put in the time to revise like crazy. And then, you know, and then sometimes it comes much more quickly. Sometimes you know what you're doing and it's, yeah. How long did it take you to do this latest novel? I feel like I wrote the first draft in about a year, maybe nine months, something like that. I looked back just the other day and I see that I was taking notes for it in the winter of 2018. So that's a long time ago. I had worked on my collection of short stories around the same time. So it's a little hard to tell. I kind of lose track. It's been through a lot of drafts and different people read it. My agent read it a number of times. And I genuinely stopped counting the months (laughs) or the days or the, I just, I don't know, just all process. And I'm, and I'm usually just excited about whatever draft I'm on, you know, and then somehow miraculously, you know, when it's done. Someone a couple of days ago asked me, the book I'm working on. Oh, this sounds so good. When are we going to get to read it? And I said, oh, if it sells, when I finish revisions, you're looking at at least, you know, a year, 18 months. If you're lucky. That's the thing of it. That's the thing of it. This book that's coming out in October, I think it was accepted. I think closer to almost two years ago. It was a long time. My publisher had it. So that's kind of also the case these days. Yeah. They're taking a long time. And that was, you know, I guess it sold during COVID. And the whole thing seemed sort of miraculous that it was even happening at all. No complaints. No complaints. Yeah. What is next for you? Well, this book is, you know, out the door and I can't wait to share it with readers. I'm working on essays that will come out around the same time as the book. And that'll be opportunity to sort of share some of the research I did into it and the backstory and various other things. But I do have another novel that I've been working on for quite some time. Again, who knows how long a contemporary novel. It's not historical. It's set in Richmond, Virginia, where I lived for 17 years. And it takes place during the summer of 2020. And that was the summer during COVID when the social justice protests were taking place mm-hmm. and the Confederate monuments along the main avenue there in town were coming down. And it's against that backdrop, it's the story of two marriages that implode right as that's all happening. And this intertwined family between these two couples. I think of it in a way as my Southern book, having lived there for so long and my mother was Southern. And I, I just think it's an opportunity to get to focus on that and race and just our current moments that we've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, Fascinating. Anyway, yeah, I'm excited for it. It's called Of Monuments and Marriages. What a so, great title. I'm writing yeah. this down. And as your friend said to you, when are you going to see it? Well, yeah. good question. Got to finish <laughs> writing it, first of all. Are you reading anything fun? 
Oh my goodness. I read all the time. I read more than one book at a time. And I read a funny selection of books that just cross my threshold. I follow my nose. If I'm doing research, I just read a Somerset mom novel that I liked. And I do that because I'm interested in kind of classical writing Mm -hmm. from earlier eras. I read the new Ann Beatty collection of short stories called Onlookers that's set in Charlottesville. And it's about people there around the time the Lee Monument came down. And it's after the the Right rally, but it's affected by that. So I thought, oh, I better read that. Turns out it's really mostly about the people there. A little less than mine is about the action that took place that summer. But a book that I can highly recommend of the moment that I just went to an event by the author, Rachel Cantor, is Half-Life of a Stolen Sister, a historical novel that is so inventive. I don't even know if she'd call it a historical novel, but it's about or based on the Bronte sisters. Mm-hmm. But it's got this funny, she she just entirely trusted her imagination, which I really respect. The story does not take place exclusively in the past. It sort of takes place in our era and earlier eras. There were six children in that family, plus a mother. And I don't even want to tell you, I mean, I guess you can look it up, how many of them all died. But it, it basically, if I remember correctly, at least at least Charlotte Bronte, the last one standing, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it is so entertaining and fun and has so many different voices. And I'm just having a blast reading it. Do you have any advice for new writers? Sure. I think the main thing is everything takes longer than you think. And trust your voice, meaning just write, 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 write. And pre-write, let your, let your mind go and don't start revising too soon. I think that first drafts, particularly of novels, are a place for a writer to find what their story and find their characters. And I know so many writing programs and fellow writers who start sharing their works in progress, their novels, with their very first chapters. And they hand it to a group and they hand it to others. And they say, what do you think? Because we're all eager. We really want to know what other people think. But the problem is, if we don't know what we think, if we're not even sure who these characters are yet, then by opening ourselves up to advice and comments and all the voices coming into the room, it can really muddy the waters. Mm-hmm. And so trust yourself that through the process of writing a first draft, you'll find your story and you'll find your characters. And then when you finish that first draft entirely, then you can start thinking about maybe sharing parts of it. I just think people end up spinning their wheels if they start getting advice too early. Thank you, Virginia. Sure. Really happy to meet you. And I'm so, so glad you do this podcast. It's incredible. To learn more, visit Virginia Pie, that's P-Y-E dot com. If you're enjoying the writing table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.